Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, this is fun. I think we received uh, well over 200 emails and messages from people telling us that Fen's gold was found. Yeah. Stop sending messages, please. So We appreciate it, but... It was a story that we, we talked about pretty early on in, in the podcast, and I love, love, love that you people know what we want to hear about <laughs> for sure. And that was amazing to me because I was like, oh, shit, did you hear that Fen's gold? And you were like, oh, that's really interesting. And I was like, I know, right? And then it was all bing. Bing, 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 And I was like, I know. Now, let's just briefly recap. This guy, Forrest Fenn, allegedly hid like a million dollars plus in gold and gems and then gave clues in a poem that he released. For 10 years, people have been looking for this gold. And now, allegedly, it's been found. And so I was like, wouldn't it be funny if he was like just running low on dollars? So he just <laughs> went out to the desert yeah. and dug it up and yeah. was like, oh, someone found it. Oopsie. He needed the cash. Right, right. My thought is that it never existed. Right. He's 89 now. He figures probably it's time to cash in the laugh, which he will get. Um, but according to his his blog, somebody found this treasure. Uh, They sent him a picture of it and Mm -hmm. verified the coordinates of where it was, but he won't say who that person is. That's Uh, good, though. That person, uh, he just said, is from, quote, back east, and uh, nobody knows who who this person is or if, in fact, the treasure was really found or if, in fact, there was really a treasure. I think it's just him having some fun. (laughs) I love the idea that it was real and that someone did find it. And if someone found it and he was like, oh, yeah, someone found it. It was Brian O'Doyle from Westchester, 
Sinfieldville. Fieldville. Yes, the Westchester Sinfieldville Doyles. Then uh, I'd be like, wow, that guy's a dick. <laughs> you know, Brian Doyle doesn't want everyone knowing he found your treasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I applaud the not telling who it was that found it, even though I kind of don't believe that Brian found it. Right. No, I think that it's a bunch of hoo-ha. <laughs> Either way, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you so much for sending all the messages. Yeah, we're just kidding. We love hearing from you guys, even if it's over and over and over again. (laughs) We did post uh, an Instagram video from the deck. I realize now that I was probably um, a little too... Hornswoggled? I I was into the giggle juice. Uh And so maybe I should like... Had a, had a couple of drams of pop skull. Turn off the, the Soshmeads mm-hmm. when... Oh, be joyful. Anyway. <clears throat> it was fun. Oh, I put some nectarines in my iced tea, and it's probably the best choice I've ever made. <laughs> oh, so good. <clears throat> what you got for me? Well, today I want to talk about the ghosts on Mount Everest. Mount right. Everest is littered with bodies of dead climbers. Right, yes. They've accumulated over the decades. Now, when you say ghosts, though, Mm -hmm. do you mean ghosts Mm -hmm. and not just bodies? Mm -hmm. I mean both. Oh, shit, girl. Oh, shit. Yeah. There are so many bodies on Mount Everest that when you climb to the summit, if you go through the regular route that they take to the summit, you have to physically step over bodies. Right. And some of the bodies are actually used as landmarks along the way. So like Green Boots is like halfway up or something like that. Yep. In fact, Green Boots is one of the most famous bodies. Yeah. His real name, by the way, was Taswang Paljor. And it is now a, uh, a landmark on the main northeast ridge route to the mountain. In death, Green Boots has become sort of a guide for the living. He died in a small indentation in the cliff that is a um, a common place for, for hikers to crawl in and kind of catch their breath mm. and rest up a little bit. Um, he died in there, and that indentation is right next to the main path to the summit, and people actually have to step over his legs to proceed. Passing hikers even occasionally stop for a selfie with green boots. Doesn't that oh, seem a, a little uh, disrespectful? Rude. Maybe. Um Though, of course, we just casually refer to him as Green Boots. Green Boots. And he's a mile marker. Uh So, Yeah, yeah. good point. Another guy, um, David Sharp, who was also a a fellow mountaineer, uh, uh, entirely different party. Uh, In fact, years after Green Boots died, crawled in there to to stay warm, and he died in there too. But his body was removed. According to an article on Ranker, Mount Everest is notorious for its corpses. People travel from all over the world, of course, to climb Everest, and and not all of them survive. There are avalanches. Of course, uh, a lot of people die from falling, inclement temperatures. All those things prove fatal. Most people die from avalanches. That's terrifying. Avalanches to me are very, very scary. I mean, no one wants, no one's like, woo, avalanche. Uh, but I've seen some <laughs> videos yeah. of avalanche events. And uh, like there was one where it was just taking out houses. Like it was, oh I God, don't even yeah. know if it's technically an avalanche or something graded up from an avalanche, yeah. but it was just like house, 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 just sweep, sweep, sweep. And it gives me that same feeling that like, I don't know, like a heights do or, you know, something something like that, that you just you're like my body reacts to it. I read an interview with a guy who was a skier that got swept up in an avalanche and he was obviously rescued because 
he was being interviewed about the event, sure. um, he said that the most scary thing for him was not knowing which direction was up. Yeah. Yeah, that's I can't. Ugh, no, I know. it's because it's a weird combination of of things. It's the disorientation, it's the claustrophobia, mm. and it's the cold. And there's, I'm sure, so much that. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's why we're moving to a warmer climate. <laughs> in 2017, four bodies were discovered in a tent on the uh, on a um, an Everest base camp site. Um, analysts believe the campers passed away due to altitude sickness. The weird thing is, none of the local climbing agencies reported any climbers missing. Oh. They, they remain unidentified. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, there's got to be a way that you can, like, scoot past, you know, and, and make your way undocumented, I guess. So there are there are several routes to the summit. Right. Um, some of them are more challenging than others. Most people just take this main route. Right. But I know you have you. There's like a check in right when you go up the mountain so that people know base, that you're yeah. you're there. It's like three, two or three different base camps that uh, people will set up. Their parties will set up. Um, but the most dangerous route is this particular route, Northeast Ridge route. Uh, near Ever Everest's summit. There's an area there called, they call it Rainbow Valley. Now that sounds peaceful. Mm. But essentially what it is, is a mass pit of bodies. Oh. Um, yep. The grizzly scene got its name because of all the brightly colored jackets and, and, and climbing gear yeah. that the cadavers still have on, strewn all over this section of the mountain. That's litter. Throughout the years, climbers have been known to uh, push cadavers over the mountainside into Rainbow Valley or to cut the ropes of mummified remains so that it's less hazardous as you uh, try to come back down the trail. In this area, a vast majority of those who succumb to altitude sickness or exhaustion or hypothermia, it happens in this area mm. after the summit on the way down. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. That's really depressing. Mm. It's like, oh, you've achieved the thing, and now you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. Also, I would think that any sort of uh, dangling rope mummy would be very dangerous, and I can totally understand sure. doing the old heave-ho. Heave-ho. And so these bodies are just collecting down in this gorge. That's gross. And it's just, like, littered with colorful uh, ski jackets. That is a horror movie in the making. According to the laws... In Nepal, Everest is considered sacred, and any remains are to be removed immediately. That's the law. You need to remove them immediately. The problem is it's nearly impossible to retrieve remains from this area, which is also called the death zone. Oh, cheery. There was this one guy, his name was uh, Peter Kinlock, and he had just summited Everest uh, when he was struck by sudden blindness. Now, this is another problem that people have at these altitudes. His team reported that Peter was in excellent health on the climb up, and they also noted how overjoyed he was when he reached the summit. This was a dream that mm -hmm. he had. But due to the high altitude, oftentimes, and this happened in Peter's case, climbers are struck with retinal hemorrhages bleeding from the cells in the back of their eyes, Ugh. and it can cause blurred vision or just outright blindness. Jesus. So he's on top of frickin' Everest, and he goes blind. Guides noticed that uh, Kinlock's loss of coordination was starting to become more prominent. At that point, he admitted he could no longer see. So 
Sherpas tried to help him. He's 28 years old. They try to help him down the mountain. They share their oxygen and their medicine with him over 10 hours in hopes of, of keeping him stable enough until they reached base camp. But the team began to suffer from hypothermia and frostbite. They had to make the difficult decision to leave him behind. No. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Those poor people. Several months later, one of uh, Peter Kinlock's friends, a guy named Rodney Hogue, was making his own attempt on Everest. For why, though? And he spotted Peter sitting on a ledge. His remains were perfectly preserved by the ice. He said, quote, when I saw him, I instantly knew it was Peter. You could see his face. It was just like he was lying on his back taking a rest. Jesus. The climb down to Peter was too dangerous to undertake. So Hogue took a moment. He paid his respects to his fallen comrade before continuing on. Now, before Kinlock had died, the Sherpas that were with him had clipped him to a fixed line on the side of the mountain. And that's probably where he will remain until somebody cuts him down. That's got to be super bizarre to all of a sudden see your dead friend on the side of a mountain yeah he's been dead for months and he looks like he's taking a nap i mean i would be concerned that i was like hallucinating hallucinating yeah nobody knows exactly how many bodies are still on everest but uh they estimate it to be just over 280 bodies most of them are sherpas which is not surprising. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They reside in the uh, Tibetan-Nepali border area. Interestingly, the Sherpas, when they die, they they perish, more of them perish at the lower altitudes, while the foreigners perish higher up, closer to the top of the mountain. I don't know why that is exactly, but, oh. but that's what statistics tell us. Interesting. According to the Himalaya database, most climbers expire either ascending or descending from the summit, mostly descending. Very few die at base camp. Now, there have been very strange and unexplained sightings on the mountain, particularly in this area that I'm talking about, the dead zone, just as you're coming down from the summit. Pemba Dorji, a Sherpa from Nepal, claims to have seen black shadows during his 2004 ascent of uh, Mount Everest. He noticed, when I paused at a mound of rocks... I saw what looked like spirits in the form of black shadows coming toward me. They had their hands outstretched. They were begging for something to eat. Dorji thinks the shadows are obviously spirits of mountaineers that were killed during past climbs. And um, that's interesting because it's a tradition to leave food near a deceased climber's body on the mountain as a form of respect. Mohan Singh, a resident of uh, a local Himalayan village... He reportedly uh, encountered a very strange man wearing mountain climbing gear outside of his home during the winter months of 2004. He said the sky turned black and the stranger reached for Singh's shirt like he was he was trying to grab him to keep himself from falling. Mm-hmm. But his fingers went right through Singh's body, just like a ghost might do. Whoa. The stranger's body, he said continuously changed sizes, growing up to nine feet tall and then suddenly shrinking to, quote, the height of a chicken. That's weird. That's terrifying. I mean, your brain must be doing crazy things when it, it, your body's being put through that yeah. that tremendous stress. Well, that, that that is true. And that's what makes this particular story interesting is it, this is a, um, a, a resident of a village that is certainly acclimated. Hikers go, you know, in and out of this this village on their way to and from. So he wasn't he wasn't hiking. He wasn't no. doing the the he, stressy thing. He was actually chopping wood. Chopping wood can be stressful. In June of 1933, Frank Smythe, while he was climbing, suddenly sensed that he was not alone. 
He descended from one of Mount Everest's notorious death zone areas, and during a break from this, this journey, he encountered the presence of a man. Smythe divided a mint cake with him. He attempted to break his mint cake in half, and as he was handing it to this man, the man just slowly disappeared right in front of his eyes. Oh. Sometime later, Smythe discovered two dark, bulbous objects hovering over him. He described one of the objects as having a, quote, squat, underdeveloped wing, while the other had a beak-like protrusion, kind of like uh, the spout of a tea kettle. Oh. Okay. The objects remained pulsating over him until eventually disappearing in a passing mist. Now, that could be explained by the brain's lack of oxygen at a higher altitude, but sure. that's still pretty pretty freaking weird. Yeah, it'd be creepy. In 1975, a guy named Dougal Hanston and uh, a friend of his, Doug Scott, claimed to sense, quote, a third climber aiding their survival, one particularly brutal Mount Everest ascent. Haston and Scott were members of the very first expedition that successfully climbed Mount Everest using an uncharted path. So this oh, was geez. an arduous journey. The ghostly mountaineer that the men uh, ran into. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope that on that kind of journey, you'd want to hold your head up high. Oh, an arduous journey. Got not, it. Not an argent journey. Got it. No. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Oh, topical yeah. jokes, Katrina. Oh, bringing the topical jokes. <laughs> About a band from the 60s. Early 70s, actually. <clears throat> I will look that shit up. 72, Argent, uh, Hold Your Head Up, featuring Rod Argent, former lead singer of The Zombies. Founded in 1969. Yeah, but when was that song a hit? I didn't say when was the song a hit. I said a band from the 60s. Oh, semantics. Oh, look at that. So the ghostly mountaineer that the... So the ghostly mountaineer that the men encountered uh, apparently helped them out. He provided uh, extra company and encouragement. Haston and Scott claimed that the phantom climber helped them make it through the night, and then he just disappeared. Wow. That reminds me of that story of uh, the, the woods that kill people you talked about one time. There was a group of kids, and the uh, waters were, were rising, the, the rivers were rising, and there was always someone at the river to help them across, but it turns out there there was no one there or something. Do you yeah. remember that story? Uh, vaguely, yeah. vaguely. That's called the third man factor. Oh, that's a thing. It's a thing. It's oh. an extraordinary account of how people at the very edge of death often sense an unseen presence beside them who encourages them to make one final effort to uh, survive. They offer a feeling of hope, protection, guidance, Mm. And uh, it leaves the person convinced that he or she is not alone. Now, Wikipedia says that Sir Ernest Shackleton, during the Shackleton expeditions, wrote in his book, South, his belief that a incorporeal being joined him and two others during the final leg of their journey. Shackleton wrote, during that long and racking march of 36 hours, over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. His admission resulted in other survivors of extreme hardship coming forward and sharing similar experiences. In recent years, well-known adventurers like uh, climber Reinhold Messner and polar explorers Peter Hillary and Anne Bancroft have reported that exact same 
experience. Wow. Some some people think of it as a guardian angel. Um, some people think of it as an imaginary friend. I'd like to think that if I was in that kind of situation and uh, some sort of spirit being came to me to encourage me to uh, withstand the pressures and persevere, uh, it would be Michael Jordan. Would it? Would it? Yeah. Okay. I would follow Michael Jordan's advice. Absolutely. Michael well, Jordan could talk me into just about anything. I'd be like, you're right, Michael. A lot of people say an explanation for this is it's a, a coping mechanism for the brain. Um, modern psychologists have actually used the third man factor to treat victims of trauma. Oh. The cultivated inner character lens imagined support and comfort. I like that. So that's, that's kind of a nice place to end, I think. Oh, I like that. On this story, rather than... You know, people stepping over frozen corpses. Sure, to that was nice. Top of the nice. mountain thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Ghosts. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, once again, called from the Freaks group on Facebook. Jesse writes Anyone else's family have words that they use that no one else understands? In my family, if you're about to say something and then you suddenly forget or you can't remember something that you know you know, we call it a brain fart. I just said brain fart to a friend and she was so confused. She'd never heard the term. What? Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And so many people chimed in with their family words that don't make no sense. And I love it. Number five, Emily writes, I'm from New York originally, and we call people things like chooch and scooch. I don't know how to spell it exactly, but it means you're being a pain in the ass. Uh, Abigail says, oh, we have so many family speak words that I could go on for days. Some of them are rubber husband, butt dollies, and waffle juice. They all sound bad, but they aren't. But she doesn't go on to say, you know, what they are words for. I wish... I, I need to know what waffle juice is. I need to know what butt dollies are. I think I might need one. Linda commented, Googies equals eye boogers. Yam equals huge turd. <laughs> eye lights equals too bright. Yam. <laughs> Just left a huge yam in the other room, Bob. Number two, Julie says, my mom has a habit of adding the ending ickle to a body part. For example, if you're wearing a bra, it's on the boobical area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wear shoes, it's your footical area. <laughs> and it seems totally normal to me. I love it. And Alice writes in, Zarbies. Zarbies means those little balls of fluff that you vacuum up. <laughs> little Zarbies. Zarbies. I love those things. My sister always called the um, the stuff that gathers in the bottom of a sink strainer grut. Hmm. And I liked that very much. I thought it was very... Uh, descriptive, and it sounds like the right word to use. It's grut. I've adopted that myself. Yeah. yeah. My friend's mom uh, always called farts fluffs. Fluffs. Yeah. So, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So, whoop, fluff. <laughs> <laughs> My mom, when she wanted you to do something quickly, would say higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> Go clean your room. Higgledy-piggledy. I'm not sure it's why. It's hard to but... sound authoritative when you say that. <laughs> yep. I mean it. Higgledy-piggledy. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what? 
what you what you got for me what 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 you got for me i was doing the robot during that <laughs> have you ever heard of dog mountain no are we doing two mountain stories back to back sort of okay i mean it is a mountain yes okay but dog mountain is set upon about 150 acres on a private mountaintop spot in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. The grounds are almost always open to people and their dogs. It was started by Stephen Huneck and Gwen Huneck. Stephen Huneck was born in 1948 in Columbus, Ohio. He was an American woodcarver, artist, furniture maker, painter, and author. He was a self-taught sculptor. Stephen started out as an antique furniture picker. And through that experience, he said that he learned about good design and how to build furniture that lasts forever. Mm. And he studied the furniture. So then he started to build the furniture. Stephen had very good fortune to be discovered doing the thing that he loved. He carved his first piece. It was an angel, and it was in the back of his truck. And he was discovered in 1984 when a man started pulling the angel out of the back of his truck. And he said, how much do you want for this angel? And Hunick was not intending to sell it, and he believed that the guy wouldn't pay what he wanted for it anyway, so mm-hmm. he said $1,000. And the man revealed himself to be an art dealer from Manhattan, and he gave Ooh. the guy $1,000. See, this is the type of story it's that the I dream, love. right? Yeah, it really is. So the art dealer paid Stephen the $1,000, and that was that. He was now an artist. Mm. In the New York Times in 1988, there was an article that states, in a short time, several of Mr. Hunick's works were sold through that dealer. One fetched $10,000. I never made half that on an antique, Stephen, who was 39 at the time, said. This seemed like a miracle. Within two years of the sale from his pickup truck, his works were being widely exhibited as examples of folk art from the Stamford Museum and Nature Center to the White House. Mr. Hunick's pieces are in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian Institution, the Dog Museum of America, and the American Kennel Club. So in 1994, Stephen suffered from adult respiratory distress syndrome after he fell down a flight of stairs and it left him in a coma for two months. Oh my. The doctors were not hopeful, but with the help of his wife, Gwen, Stephen made a full recovery. He pretty much had to relearn everything, how to walk, how to sign his own name. And just before this accident had taken place, he was inspired to do a series of woodcut prints based on his dog, Sally. So after he woke up from the coma, once he was able to, Stephen began working on these woodcuts. And the first woodcut he carved was called Life is a Ball, and that celebrated his newfound life, and it remains one of the most cherished and iconic of his works. Uh, You can probably picture it. It's kind of a rectangular piece, and there's a water line on the bottom with a dog's head coming up out of the water after a ball, and at the bottom it says Life is a Ball. It's real simplistic, but beautiful and well done, and anyway, I love it. So Stephen and Gwen didn't have kids, but they always had dogs. They were their constant companions, and they felt that they were compelled to do something special. And after Stephen's near-death experience, they bought a property in 1995 to do this project, Dog Mountain. The centerpiece of Dog Mountain is the Dog Chapel, 
and that opened its doors Memorial Day weekend of the year 2000. Uh, Dog Mountain is an unspoiled haven. It's got hiking trails and dog ponds. There's wildflowers in the summer, and you can snowshoe in the winter. Um, leashes are not required. You are encouraged to bring your dogs and just let them be dogs. Hmm. This is in St. Johnsbury, Vermont? Correct. Okay. Stephen spoke of his passion project and said... I've learned so much more about love from my dogs than I ever did my parents or the church. He's quoted in the Chicago Tribune as saying, they're really great teachers and they love you with their whole hearts. So Dog Mountain is a vast park-like space and it's open to the public at no charge. It also includes a gallery of Stephen's artwork and a fun agility course for dogs. I mean, I suppose people could do it too, but you know, probably more fun for the dogs. Stephen and Gwen turned the barn that was on the property into a studio space. He said, I'm a hand carver. I love the texture you can get only by hand. And he carved almost every single day of the year. Uh, he would take time out to walk the dogs, obviously. But, <laughs> but he was pretty much it's committed. What it's what he did. It's how he spent his time. And being self-taught, he carved in a very unique style. Some referred to it as backward carving. So he carved toward himself. Other artists were very curious about this style. And one actually asked if he could come and stay with Stephen and Gwen for a month, spend a month just watching him carve so that he could learn his style because he loved what he produced. I see. And the style is unique to Stephen. So he wanted to kind of absorb it. It's kind of counterintuitive, though. You don't want to be carving toward yourself with sharp, pokey things. (laughs) Stephen and Gwen were both very private people though, so they declined the offer of having a random stranger artist come live with them for a month. <laughs> uh, they, Like I said, they didn't have kids, but they did have three dogs, two black labs, Daisy and Sally, and Molly, a golden retriever. Stephen built the dog chapel himself in the style of an 1820s Vermont village church. It is small, modest, and white. The chapel resembles a regular New England church from the outside, aside from the steeple topped with a Labrador with wings. Oh, I want one. A sign out front proclaims, Welcome, all creeds, all breeds. No dogma is allowed. This is according to the New York Times. Inside, the four pews, handmade by Mr. Hunick, are supported by carved wooden dogs. Stained glass windows depict dogs in various poses. And the walls are covered, inches thick, with photos and handwritten notes to departed pets, placed there by their grieving visitors. According to John Ide, who is Gwen's brother, in an interview with NPR, Stephen said that the dog chapel was his largest and most personal artwork. And it really is. It's a masterpiece. The videos that I watched of it, it's almost spiritual. People walk inside and there's this real reverence in mm. a weight that's carried there. And you can see these handwritten notes, you know, that say things like, Frankie, these 16 years were the best years of my life. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget you, my sweet hot dog, you know, that kind of thing. Some artwork is obviously made by children grieving their their lost pets. It's really a, a, an emotional place. What a beautiful project. What a beautiful effort. What a beautiful work of art that is. And it was so personal to them. It was such a passion project, a, a, a thing that they believed that, that we need to have. 
Unfortunately, the Hunix fell on hard times during the 2008 financial crisis. And Stephen, in January of 2010, was despondent over having to have laid off employees. They lost a lot of money. They weren't able to maintain the employees that they had hired. Mm. And so at the age of 61, he took his own life. In June of 2013, after three years of maintaining Dog Mountain on her own and struggling to keep it going and grow this project that meant so much to her and her husband, Gwen passed away as well. The Dog Mountain community released a statement. Gwen never got over the loss of Stephen and missed him terribly every day. As you all know, after Stephen's death, she devoted her life to continuing his legacy as a great artist. She continued to manage the gallery and kept active in community affairs. She vowed to help turn St. Johnsbury into one of the most dog-friendly places in Vermont. So this year, the 20th anniversary of the opening of the Dog Chapel, the Dog Mountain website posted, Finally, in the year 2000, The Dog Chapel was introduced to the world as a symbol of peace, love, and remembrance. In the 20 years since, it has been transformed into a living piece of communal art and history, ever evolving with each new note and photo pinned to the overflowing walls. The chapel has become a unique and moving physical embodiment of the unending love people have to give. In these times, especially, places like the Dog Chapel deserve to be celebrated and cherished. That is so beautiful. It's sad that that his life ended with him being so despondent and sad because clearly he gave so much joy to people through his works Mm. and this one in particular. The the struggle was not new, though. He had lived most of his life Mm. battling depression and... So it was I from the vibe that I got from the articles that I read and the statements uh, released by friends and relatives, it seemed like this was kind of all that he could handle. Mm. Like he gave what he wanted to give back and was we just wasn't able to fight anymore. It's interesting how many creative people suffer from mm. depression. I've not seen any statistics on it, but I would venture to guess it's a pretty high percentage. Absolutely. So Friends of Dog Mountain is a nonprofit organization that was established by family and friends of Stephen and Gwen uh, that's committed to ensuring the Dog Mountain and the Stephen Hunick Gallery and the Dog Chapel will not just survive, but thrive. And you can find more on the website dogmt.com. There's all kinds of information about Stephen's art and the legacy and where you can donate to help keep this passion project going. There's actually been a documentary made about the location as well. It's called Dog Mountain, A Love Story. Mm. And I think I'd really like to watch that slash uh, never watch it because I don't think (laughs) I'll make it through it. (laughs) Yeah, we have a very dear friend who had to say goodbye to his dog today. Yeah. Um, so this story, I think, affects you and I maybe a bit more because of that. I know this is kind of a bummer. And I tried to figure out, like, how to, like, put the whole death part in the first part and mm. then move. But there's no way you have, you know, you yeah. got to tell a story as it is. And so I wanted to leave you with this. It's a, a quote uh, from Stephen Hunick. 
that um, I found in one of the articles that I read. I received inspiration to accomplish certain things in life, and that figures into a bigger equation. You have to give to get. That's beautiful. I know. Whew, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Dogs, they're great, huh? Yeah, they're so great. And I love dogs. Um, and we love you. And we love that you hang out with us, and we want to welcome our latest premium subscribers to the Box of Oddities. You know, we're going to be uh, releasing our next bonus episode in just a few days. So if you're not a member yet, now's a good time to join. You get the bonus episode. You get all of the episodes ad-free. You get them a day early. And you get access to the back channel, which is direct contact with us. So if you want to send a message through the back channel that says, fuck you, Katrina, for giving me all these feelings, <laughs> you big stupid head. You know she's going to see it. Yep. You'll know I'll see it. Yep. And she'll respond to it. I get it. In some way. I get it. com is where you can go to uh, to become a, um, a charter member, if you will. <laughs> You can get all kinds of details there about all kinds of stuff. We yep. try to make it a one-stop shop for all your box of oddities needs. And there's plenty of free parking. And a helpful, knowledgeable staff. <laughs> we'll see you next time, my friend. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore... It's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story the big picture questions, and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.